Hello everyone and welcome back to IBM Tech TV. This week I'm hosting Paco Nathan. He's an external contributor in the IBM data science community and he's managing partner at Derwin AI. He brings to us this week a historical and external point of view on the space of cloud computing and specifically how it's impacting data science and machine learning broadly. We're really excited to hear some of his stories and talk about trends and research in the space. With all that said, now's the best time to get started. With me on IBM Tech TV is Paco Nathan, managing partner of Durban AI. Paco, thank you. Thank you very much. Great to be here, Will. So Paco, we had sort of a broad blueprint plan for a conversation talking about machine learning and data science in a cloud environment. And we started off by sharing some resources, namely that paper from Eric Jonas, the, the Berkeley Research View on serverless computing. Um, where is the best place for us to start our conversation here? Well, yeah, I, I think that that's a, that's a nice uh, or a really interesting historical arc, that, that paper and, and what had come before it. Um, yeah. And it, it probably does lead into the other paper we were talking about and some of the history with it, too. The paper itself is a reboot of something from 2007 or 2009, right? They, they originally said, that's you know, upcoming, this is the space of serverless computing, this is what it's going to look like. And now they've done, 10 years later, the retrospective, like, what's the actual space actually look like? Yeah, that, you know, they, they published the second paper 10 years to the day after the first paper and uh, very much intentionally. Um, oh, wow. it, it came out of a lab. Um, I, I like to joke that Berkeley has this sort of five-year plan, sort of a callback to Soviet era. Um, yeah, <laughs> they really do. In uh, I, I've done some work with uh, EECS over the years and the EECS department tends to put together, um, or at least some of the professors put together plans that last for four or five years. So there was something called Rad Lab a long time ago. Uh, that was yeah. when the first paper came out. And then subsequently there was something called Amp Lab, which was an mm -hmm. evolution of that. And, and now there's something called Rise Lab. Um, right. And there's a, a direct train and a lot of open source has come off of them. Uh, just for kind of background, uh, Amp Lab, of course, was real famous for doing Apache Spark. And so David Patterson had put together this lab to study what was happening uh, in mm -hmm. computer science. And cloud, of course, was a big thing. I got lucky in 2005 to have a little bit of a preview for some of the ideas of AWS. And yeah. in 2006, I was one of the early guinea pigs and I, I was a technical co-founder for a startup and we cut over to being 100% cloud. And then we ran into some bottlenecks. And so we adopted this new open source project uh, to try to alleviate some of the bottlenecks we had running in the cloud. It was called Hadoop. And uh, <laughs> we, we found some bugs uh, in Hadoop that, uh, that really didn't make it work all that well in cloud. It was built for on-prem originally. So, um, you know, I, I hired a consultant, a very young consultant named Tom White uh, to fix. He was, his name was on the Jira ticket, so we fixed the bug. And uh, Tom made a big splash later on. He was the author of a book called The Definitive Guide to Hadoop and uh, a longtime consultant for Cloudera and, and a really great guy. So long story short, I'd been around cloud early and yeah. also using Hadoop at scale, our, our project had been one of the early big projects using Hadoop in the cloud and was a, a case study for Elastic MapReduce. And so, you know, I had friends who were in the PhD program at Berkeley and uh, I heard about a paper because AWS had helped to fund their lab. They were, they were doing a lot of sort of critical research about where cloud was going back in 2008, yeah. 2009. I, I critiqued the paper, not really thinking about it. I just added my two cents. 
Uh, but it was it was David Patterson was like lead author. So David calls <laughs> me up and uh, I went up to give a guest lecture. And there, there's actually a video of the first half of it on Vimeo. Um, but, but basically about every two minutes, uh, David is interrupting and saying, I, I just have one question. And so <laughs> it was basically thesis defense for a couple of hours in front of David right. Patterson, which I, I, I probably lost a few years of my life, but it was really fun. So they, they put together this 2009 paper called About the Clouds uh, that, mm-hmm. that really uh, showed a lot of, of what had been happening in the first really only three years of public use of cloud, but it, but it really set the tone for how things would evolve. And, and there's a methodology that David Patterson and one of his other colleagues, they have an engineering methodology for uh, asking certain questions about how a piece of technology is evolving and then yeah. interviewing a wide range of people. And, and there's a methodology for, for pulling together this kind of survey data. And they used it there very effectively. And they really, uh, they nailed it in terms of how cloud was likely to roll out. Over, yeah. over a period of time. And so, you know, coming into a decade later, uh, there's a new set of graduate students uh, and two other labs now ahead, Rise Lab now. And uh, Eric Jonas was a, a postdoc. And if you if you ever get a chance to meet Eric, he's now a professor, I think, at UChicago. Um, okay. But he self-describes as being somebody who, as a teenager, was obsessed about cloud. So he wrote like cloud simulators as a teenager, just so he could have his own cloud thing working. Um, of course. Yeah, l- like you do. But he was really interested in the um, the physics that drive a lot of what's happening in hardware that subsequently yeah. drives a lot of what we're doing with distributed systems. And then from there, what are we doing with machine learning and data science? And so I, I, I love his perspectives on this. And, and it's... You know, he is the lead author. Just to paraphrase, um, this uh, the serverless view is a lot about the 2019 yeah. perspective. And and the idea there was that, uh, you know, he'd come into this famous lab that had created Spark that had Michael Jordan, one of the most famous professors right. in machine learning. And he noticed that, like, I think the number was, it was about 40% of the grad students had ever actually run a Spark job. And, really? And so he's like, wait, you guys created this. Why, you know, here are the people who created Spark. How come you aren't using Spark more? Yeah. But the the really telling thing was like looking at Michael Jordan's PhD students amongst the machine learning PhDs, um, it was single digit percentage. And so he really dug into that. And the idea was, you know, I, I, I'll echo it. Um, the, the thing that became a case study for Amazon back in 2008, the, the largest yeah. Hadoop instance on the cloud, I can take that same code now and the same data rates, I can run it in Python on my laptop and it runs faster. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, and and I think this is across the board that we've seen multi-core and we've seen a lot of advances in networking, um, you know, disk technologies, memory technologies across the board. Hardware has been such a game changer and a lot of, a lot of what we might've needed a cluster for, we can actually do faster in memory now. Yeah. But then when you start to do more sophisticated things, you need a cluster. So <laughs> it's kind of this leapfrog thing. And I think AutoML is some of the really compelling parts of where mm. computing is at. Um, yeah. Obviously, deep learning, even more so reinforcement learning. These all have big appetites for cluster. Right. So that's a lot of what Jonas was exploring was how there's really 
implications of physics going into you know the electronics that that that, that drive decisions about how a cloud is structured. Sure. And then from that, how can you build some principles of economics, uh, essentially mm-hmm. cloud physics and cloud economics? And and a lot of what he was saying is that you know we used to have quite a number of uh, Big data frameworks. I think if yeah. I were to look at 2010, you know, I, I can name so many things that were popular back then that right. I haven't seen anybody using lately. <laughs> and and part of the the point that they're making in that paper is that as the storage grids became, uh, well, they were reliable in the first place. Uh, the storage grids have become not only more reliable but also faster. I mean, it used mm. to be that you really needed a layer. If you wanted to use something like Amazon S3, a storage grid there, you needed another layer to cache the results because trying to trying to pull something out of a storage grid, it just wasn't fast enough. But, you know, 14 years later, it's a different story. Yeah. Um, and 14 years later, we also have really large memory spaces. Yeah. And so that that effect of like, how much can you do in memory and how fast can you get something out of a grid? You know, it it implies that there's less need for the layers in between. Mm. And so you kind of get physics and economics acting on the fact that we end up having less and less layers of caching uh, sure. in between and, and less frameworks. So you, you get more general purpose frameworks that can do more is kind of the yeah. shot. And that's a yeah. lot of what the paper is about. Um, it's also a lot about how more and more we're seeing a lot of ad hoc jobs. I mean, if I look mm. at it, a data science team at some large bank. Yes, they are running large cluster compute frameworks, but there's also a lot of kind of one-off jobs uh, to train a model or run something, do some visualization. And and maybe, you know, 40%, I'm just picking a number, but some large percentage of your total compute, it's going to be a lot of ad hoc. Um, yeah. So if you can take your laptop and run something remote ad hoc in the cloud, that's a, that's a huge win. Um, yeah. As opposed to scheduling a batch job and shipping it out and then getting results back. And then, right. and then over the decade, that's how a lot of it has changed. And, and then there are other implications as well. But, but I mean, you know, just trying to abstract out some of what they're saying in that paper, um, I, I think that we are seeing this big push toward a lot of change in hardware. Um, we'll see more and more specialized hardware, especially when you mm. look at the needs for deep learning. GPUs are not necessarily what you would have done if you're trying to build a, a neural network hardware accelerator. For, <laughs> for what it's worth, if I roll the clock back to 1989, I I was at uh, Motorola and okay. I, I was working in Emerging Technology Center and we were building hardware accelerators for neural networks. Wow. So that was that was kind of fun. I my I was the software side of a team. The hardware side of my team was a guy named Mike Gallup who had He'd been the lead on something called the uh, 68030. Uh, okay. So, you know, really well-known industry hardware designer. And it was kind of fun because this was in 89. Mike and I had both been really involved in grad school and getting our careers started. So we really hadn't kept up on our science fiction reading. Um, yeah. So we we both discovered uh, Neuromancer from William Gibson about the same time. Okay. And so yeah. it was crazy because like we would be reading Neuromancer at night, coming into work the next day, building out hardware for machine learning with neural networks and going, yeah. wow, if we could only connect the dots, it'd be so cool. We could build AI. <laughs> well, I really appreciate the uh, overview, which sort of starts us out with the reality that the analytics that we're seeing built out are born of a 
development in hardware, right? We yeah. got to a stage in the mid to late 2000s where someone realized it was time to start storing a lot of information that was previously not economical to store. Right. And then that sort of beget this generation of data scientists who are like, let's start pulling this apart, figure out the best ways to do that and what's the best way to get information out of it. So it makes sense to to also sort of look at it retrospectively 10 years later and say, how has that changed? Because like you said, we don't necessarily have to build our own Hadoop cluster to store that information and then process it, right? Things right. have drastically pivoted. And the, and the Python stack, the, the sort of the pie data stack of where people are using right. pandas and scikit-learn. And, and I mean, we, some of what we've written about together, uh, things like yeah. pandas, uh, yeah. you know, there's so much built atop that stack and it translates into work in the cloud so fluidly. Yeah. Um, that's, I think, been a big accelerant for a lot of what we're, the successes that we're seeing in data science. We could go on for a long time talking about this, and I kind of want to. But at the same time, one of the ideas that you mentioned that you think is particularly well-suited for some of these developments is AutoML. And that's a topic which is very top of mind for a lot of data scientists who maybe think that their job is being scripted away, but also um, are just curious about how it can enhance what they're doing. Um, it, is right. there a great place for us to start that conversation, talking about it as uh, maybe a consumer of some of these technologies? It definitely. I mean, I think this is a good segue into it. Um, we were just talking about scikit-learn and pandas and, yeah. and all. Um, so AutoML, you know, I, when AutoML first started bubbling up, um, you would see things like um, hyperparameter optimization. So right. for listeners, viewers, if you have a machine learning model, the model itself is typically a machine learning algorithm is composed out of a lot of learners. There's a lot of learning algorithms that you can take some patterns of data and they'll be able to generalize them. And so typically uh, these algorithms will have a number of different learners running and we'll pick out the good ones. Right. Um, and so if you have a random forest, then you've got a lot of different decision trees and they all sort of capture different nuances about the, the data set that you're trying to learn. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what those learners produce, we call those parameters. So you have a model as a whole bunch of parameters to capture the state of the learners so that you can run that model in production and leverage what they've learned. Now, to get to the point of having the model, you need to run the algorithms. And typically, there are some arguments to control them, to adjust right. them. And those are called hyperparameters. And so the idea of AutoML, a lot of the early discussions about it were how could you tune those hyperparameters to generate a really good set of, of resulting parameters, resulting model. Because uh, it's otherwise, it feels a very hands-on practice, right? You're defining your boundaries. Maybe you're not sure if those are the right boundaries for the space that it should search. It's, it's kind of a, uh, one of those things you don't want to spend a lot of time working on. Oh, yeah. No, it mind-numbingly uh, laborious. Um, right. You know, r rolling the clock back about a decade, that would have been what we'd spent a lot of time cleaning up the data <laughs> and then tuning the parameters. Right. Um, and the, the interesting thing there is kind of a recursive, uh, another level of abstraction up is that we're already using machine learning algorithms to adjust and refine the learners to get the parameters. Mm -hmm. So it is very possible to also use, go level up and, and use machine learning algorithms to adjust the hyperparameters. So now you've got a couple of levels of optimization. And so, 
yeah, yeah, the the short answer is this is very much not about losing our jobs. Uh, <laughs> if anything, it's it's generating more jobs because it does open up machine learning to a lot more use cases. And I, maybe that would be a good thing to segue in in the next segment. But the, the thing is that when we build machine learning models, you know, starting out, we kind of went after the low hanging fruit. Um, yeah. Probably the, the first really good notice of this was a paper by Leo Bremen in mm-hmm. 2000 uh, called uh, Two Cultures. And mm-hmm. it was a contrast between the data modeling culture that I learned in grad school, which was sure. uh, as an analyst, somebody hands me a data set and I spend a week or a few months and I analyze it and do all statistics and I write it up and I send them back a report. But by 2000, you know, we were starting to see really coming from the late nineties, some of the early e-commerce like Amazon and Google and others where, you know, you wouldn't send the, the data modeling off to a a statistician who would take a a month to turn it around. Instead, this stuff was being done in milliseconds. Right. And, And so you see this really big culture change and that's what Bremen was talking about in terms of the two cultures, where we started to see more automated machine learning use cases deployed in, in industry. Right. But, but initially, you know, it was going after things like advertising and search kind of coupled together. Right. Um, there's a few other areas. Finance was a big one. Mm-hmm. But there weren't all that many areas that could really afford to get, you know, expensive experts in machine learning coupled yeah. with expensive hardware. Yeah. And, and so for a long time, I mean, people, those of us who did it, we, uh, we worked at advertising or social networks or finance. Um, and, and I certainly did. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's changed because like I say that the, the stuff that would have been like a really high end case study in 2008 yeah. today, yeah. I can, I can do on my laptop faster. Um, so it's really opened up to more of a ubiquity of a lot of places where machine learning can be used, a much broader um, range of use cases, a much more yeah. breadth of, of market, if you will, for a lot of mom and pa shops, uh, you know, a lot of smaller businesses, um, sure. pretty much any company that has a small fleet of trucks uh, should yeah. probably be thinking about some kind of optimization. Um, right. And I mean, that includes, you know, any plumbing company with, you know, more than two people working at it. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think that we, we've gone from really um, expensive special cases to much more general case. And this trend of auto ML is sort of, can we build more abstraction layers on top? Because mm-hmm. even though it started out just trying to tune the hyperparameters, now auto ML has spread out across the entire end-to-end life cycle of machine learning. Right. So, so, you know, there's there's the aphorism that data science teams spend 80% of their time cleaning up data. And right. you can use some auto, auto ML techniques. Um, Holocene is a really interesting open source project for using weak supervision uh, for auto ML techniques uh, to, to do data preparation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can go through, you know, we could go through all the stages in machine learning and at each point show where there is some machine learning tools that help to automate a lot of the the, the busy work, if you will. Um, yeah. And so you build up these different layers, these different segments of the workflow. And it's, it's really about how can we be smarter? And I, I think that ultimately um, what we're looking toward is, is 
a trend of something called meta-learning. And mm. it's still kind of a research topic, but we see some approaches. Um, there's a project uh, out of IBM. Uh, it's an open source yeah. project called Lale. Uh, yeah. One of my favorite examples, uh, very visual example of meta-learning. Um, but the idea is that Lale in Python, you can have this grammar. You want to do some data prep and you want to do some feature engineering and maybe you want to use scikit-learn. Uh, Lale can sort of set atop all those and there's a, a way to define in very simple terms what those workflows should look like. And then you start running it and it'll optimize, use AutoML at different stages and figure out like what's the optimal model to use, what are some optimal features to use, what's the optimal evaluation strategy. Um, and it's very visual how it does it. Right. Um, and it, and it ultimately, you know, the point you're making about storage was really interesting that, um, you know, if, if you, there was this dividing point, I think somewhere in the late 90s, up until that point, most of the data on the internet had been entered by people. Um, right. After that point, most of the data was created by machines. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's completely, you know, gone that direction. Um, when we look at what a data science team does in practice, there's a lot of data being generated. There's a lot mm -hmm. of judgments and decisions being made in terms yeah. of how do we create workflows and how do we deploy them. In MLOps, we're seeing, you know, we're collecting a lot of telemetry about what does or doesn't work in production. The idea of meta-learning is can we do some data mining on all that telemetry that's been collected and use that so that six months from now, when this team is confronting a new problem, can yeah. they leverage off what they've learned in the past? Sure. And can we use some machine learning to really accelerate how to leverage all that log data and get yeah. them, you know, cut down the time to market for getting a new solution out into production? Yeah. One of the things that we wanted to potentially talk about or that you indicated maybe we should dive into for our, our little next segment here was use cases yep. and the expansion therein. When we look at supply chain and like factory optimization, um, I mean, there, there are just enormous numbers of use cases. And so I want to talk a little bit about that because I think that, um, uh, well, there, there's actually some really good reports that have come out about the pandemic, about shocks to supply chain and yeah. how we're seeing some of the decisions of that old school thinking. Basically, the economics were still kind of circa 1986. Yeah. But the shocks to the supply chains have demonstrated that you no, know, actually, we need to be much more resilient, and yeah. um, and we need to be able to anticipate, you know, sort of black swan events, um, and and machine learning is actually a really big part of this. Yeah, well, it's really difficult to envision how a pandemic could displace your supply chain up until it happens, I mean, and yeah. that's one of the problems with the sort of like outlier detection experiences that you need some sort of data to have been able to foresee it coming in the future, right? Um, it's unfortunately one of the lessons we're learning right now. Although, you know, I, I mean, uh, sort of a corollary there too is one of the other things that we're seeing with both cloud and machine learning is, uh, I mean, in cloud, uh, on the operations side, one of the famous practices yeah. is, is sort of game day testing. And uh, since you have virtualized environments, it's very easy to kind of unplug things and see what breaks. Mm. And so a, lo a lot of the testing, a lot of the ML ops 
or not on, but regular ops side of things, um, has been about that kind of uh, chaos monkey approach. Chaos monkey, right? Yeah. You know, and and it's very famous for cloud operations from Netflix, uh, but also you know similar game day testing at Amazon and others. Um, and and again, those kind of virtualized environments really lead toward that mindset of let's make this more resilient. Let's let's mm. actually induce failures and find out and measure how and where are we or are we not resilient? A really strong corollary to that is in machine learning, we're also, you know, we, we've had a couple decades now of looking at how to optimize for the really good case. Like, let's go after the advertising conversion that we know will make money. Um, sure. And now we're moving more toward adversarial and, and the notion of like GANs and mm. for testing and training um, and also counterfactuals uh, we yeah. see some of this in deep learning, uh, certainly with dropouts. We definitely see it in reinforcement learning where we're not just learning the right thing to do. We're learning, yeah. we're, we're learning how to create failures and then adjust from them back towards something that's, that's feasible. Um, yeah. so it's a very different mindset for machine learning and it does have implications then on things like supply chain. Uh, we may not be able to anticipate all the black swans, but we can actually generate some that have never happened before. Uh, yeah. And if we can do that in simulation, then we can be ready for it in the real world. Yeah, that's really a call to arms there, isn't it? That we need yeah. to be doing some more of these exercises and building the capacity for our predictive capabilities so that we understand these things in advance. And, and, and you know, the thing that I'm urging about it is that it's not just something that uh, Boeing does when they're building an airliner. It's it's yeah. not not just something that some large company does. It's something that a mom pa shop should be able to have the tools to do themselves. Uh, yeah, and maybe they don't. Maybe they use a cloud service for this. But we're starting to see some of that start to evolve. And and I've been talking to people at UC Davis, especially when we talk about food supply. Um, you know, uh, it, it, oddly, it, it's a driver for a lot of other things. I mean, I love that idea, and it it does tie back into this. this notion that they explore in the paper that started this conversation, which is how do we actually push compute as a service, right? How do we make it so that people don't have to buy the whole horse just to take a ride? Right. right? right, right, Um, right. I think that's a really smart way to think about how to scale up these mom and pop shops who can't obviously afford to stack their own Hadoop cluster and track all of their customers' footfall. Definitely. Paco, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really, really glad that we had you on Tech TV. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you much, Will. This is fun. All right. Today, I had the distinct pleasure of speaking with Paco Nathan, who gave us a historical overview of how both the developments of hardware and software have affected our path to machine learning and data science today. There were some very complicated ideas about trends and future forecasts, which probably need teasing out with an IBM expert. If you want to have one of those conversations, make sure you click over and book time today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Tech TV. We hope that you enjoyed it and look forward to my conversation next week with IBM's Gabriela de Caruso.